I don't know about you, but I don't believe there is a finer American singer, songwriter, person with a bigger heart, person with a greater commitment to, frankly, all the things that this podcast stands for than the great John Prime. And we open our taping of this episode number six of Three Batter Rule, uh, as we seem to do almost every week now, amid breaking news. And the breaking news this time is the release by the Prine family that uh, the great John Prine is seriously ill at this hour, suffering from COVID-19. And, and so that which has uh, swept the nation, now 125,000 cases in the United States, Tennessee now 1,500 cases as we, as we tape this podcast on Sunday evening. And, and in the midst of all of those numbers, two amazing things happened this week. I'm Tom Lee. Uh, glad to be with you uh, on these unusual days. We never imagined when we began this show about six weeks ago where we would be, but here we are, and we're delighted to be with you, and I'm delighted to be with Tom Griscom and David Eichenthal. Gentlemen, how are you this morning? Hanging in there. How are you, Tom? I'm you know, doing well. I'm doing well. We, Mary and I have figured out how we can have socially distanced walks with our grandson and our daughter and our son-in-law. And we're doing it smartly. Uh, it's just figuring out the, the new normal, as we all know. Tom, I, Tom, by the way, I asked David because in his neighborhood, there were people on their porches playing musical instruments this weekend. And I asked David if he played one. He, he nicely said no, but he was listening to others. Yeah. David, uh, uh, why not? Was there not a stereo you could play out on the front porch? Uh, well, it's a well-known fact that I nearly failed recorder in third grade, so I decided to spare my neighbors. But we actually have a wonderful. You, you young didn't have a you didn't have a kazoo anywhere handy you could bring out. No, I couldn't. I actually didn't make the kazoo band at the University of Chicago either. But uh, we have a terrific young performer, one of many great uh, musicians in our community who are up and coming, a uh, guy by the name of Ben Van Winkle, who lives across the street from us. And he was out on his front porch making really beautiful music. I think what's been going on, I think some neighbors, neighborhoods around the country are really doing this smart. I don't know about you guys, but I now have my uh, stuffed bear out in my front window so that as little kids go out for their daily walk with their parents, they could do the bear hunt. Uh, there was a great story on NPR about how a woman helped celebrate her father's 90th birthday by arranging for all of the neighbors in the neighborhood not to go walking around, but to stay on their front porch or on their front lawn holding happy birthday signs. And she took her 90-year-old dad and put him in the car and had a little bit of a parade. The neighbors wish him happy birthday. So there are safe and smart ways, as Tom talked about, to achieve social distancing and uh, 
really, again, it's this notion of being alone, but really being together in meaningful ways. Yeah, and let me add to that. So, David, this week, we went we, where we live, going down the street, somebody had gone around and had put up one of those smiley-faced balloons with helium in it. And, and, and that wasn't just what was neat. Somebody came out later, they took the balloon and, and put a smiley face saying, thank you. Well, and I have to tell the best of these stories. So my daughter lives in Washington, D.C. She lives in a studio apartment. The apartment faces an alley, and there is another big apartment building right across the street from her. And my daughter has a fantastically cute cat by the name of Midge, named after the marvelous <laughs> uh, Midge Maisel. This is, of course, the marvelous Midge Meowzel. And one of her neighbors across the alley put up a sign uh, uh, that said, Dear Cute Cat Across the Street, Thank You for Being Cute. And uh, Midge dutifully put up a sign saying, Thank you. Uh, <laughs> well, in the, in the, in the world of uh, the macro, which is the world of politics, the politics around COVID-19, I, I, I wanted to say that they continue to shift, but I don't know that they are. I think the inability of candidates to campaign personally, to engage voters directly, whether it's in the big rally setting that uh, the president prefers or door-to-door uh, -door that some candidates prefer. I think what I what seems to be happening right now is the, the news of this very dynamic thing that is changing everything we do appears to me to be reinforcing the politics of the status quo right now. I think it is incredibly difficult, and it's going to be incredibly difficult mm -hmm. as we go forward for someone to break through in, in this kind of environment, whether you're a challenger, Joe Biden, whether you are uh, the next creative person coming along the path who may have something new or something, uh, a new way of saying something old. I wonder what you think about that, because we've seen lots, and you just described them, lots of beautiful expressions of people communicating one to another. Uh, but politics and winning elections is about aggregating mass opinion and and engaging large numbers of people to go do something, that is to vote. Can that be done in this environment in a way that allows for new voices to break through using new techniques? Well, let me jump in first. I think the biggest tone deaf uh, award of the week was Bernie asking to let's keep debating. I mean, give me a break. Without question. Then let me flip to Tennessee. So, Tom, you, you, you do a lot of work at the Tennessee General Assembly. So if you're an incumbent and you can't raise money because you didn't adjourn, and if you have an opponent who has some you know, wit about them about how to run, they can raise money. Now, that gets to your point. How do you break through where people's heads are right now? But I would say in spite of the, the, the concern with the health concern right now, we also, the three of us know that many times people say, 
I'm more concerned about being able to get my kids fed, get my children educated, things like that. It's the economy, stupid, which we heard going back to Bill Clinton. So I, it's interesting to see how much this is deflected for what normally is out there. But if I'm a Tennessee legislator, I got to be sitting here saying, how do I raise my money? Because at some point, we're going to get back to where we were. And I've right. got to be able to go. But if they're coming back in session in June, which they are, I mean, that's a pretty big window sitting there where you can't raise any money. So here's the tricky part about that statute, Tom, and, and we have not seen it come into play until now. The statute that uh, Tom Griscom is referring to was passed in 2006 in the wake of the Rocky Top scandal. And, and of course, it had nothing to do with the Rocky Top scandal, but that's all right. Neither did anything else the legislature passed that year. But this law prohibits uh, members of the General Assembly from fundraising during the session. That's a good thing. I think, by and large, the old way was less good. Uh, the old way was where you might have, you know, a subcommittee chair with an important vote coming up the next day in his or her subcommittee. And so why not have a fundraiser the night before? Um, that wasn't the best. So the new law prohibits that. But this is one of the few times when the General Assembly proved they were visionaries and could see into the, the, the sands of, of time and foretell the future because the statute says in even-numbered years like this one, the soonest that an incumbent can raise money is either when the session ends or May 15, the earlier of the two. And so legislators are now facing the very interesting dilemma of what do I do? Legislators will be able to raise money after May 15. And we're going back into session, I think, presumably June 1, one way or the other. I think they will be back in session. So we haven't experienced a time like this. This is about the 900th time we've said this in about six episodes. We haven't experienced a time like this. We are about to. And, and that by itself is going to be an interesting test. David, I want to know, uh, I, I, I talked to a Republican friend of mine uh, this afternoon and she said, where's Joe Biden? And I said, well, tell me how you think Joe Biden can campaign right now on a national basis where the, the president, he's very, he's very pleased this weekend. His numbers are excellent uh, on his briefings. He's getting a lot of attention on those. And, and, and he's got a national microphone for about an hour it's unprecedented every day, day after day after day. I don't think he's going to let that go anytime soon. Yeah. Meanwhile, the vice president does not have elections. Uh, those are being put off. He doesn't have rallies. He doesn't have victory speeches. He can't look like a winner. What does he do? Well, I think he's doing what he can do, which is he's going on CNN. I think he probably needs to do more of what he started to do the, the, this week, because when you've got Joe Biden talking about his leadership role and responding uh, with his top aide, uh, Ron Klain, to the Ebola crisis, when you've got him 
in putting together exactly the sorts of public health experts that the president should be listening to and coming up with a plan. I think he's got the right message for this time. But but look, this is incredibly complicated. Uh, it, it is taking to the national level what I went through as part of the mayoral campaign in the city in the immediate aftermath of 9-11. Uh, I think I mentioned on one of the earlier episodes, our primary day was 9-11. People were going to vote as the planes hit in New York City, and then the election was delayed for several weeks delaying the runoff and creating the very, very short window of a general election. And, you know, campaigns always evolve, campaigns always innovate, but they always start by trying to learn lessons from what's happened in the past. There were no good lessons to learn from uh, in the case of how do you run in the aftermath of a tragedy like 9-11. I, unfortunately, and I think this is what all the public health experts suggest right now, we don't know how bad this is going to get. And I know people feel strained and concerned. And, uh, you know, John Prine is one of many people dealing with uh, whose family is dealing with the impact of COVID-19. Other, uh, other people, I guess, Terrence McNally passed away in the past week and it was COVID-19 related. This is going to become an everyday occurrence and it's only going to magnify over time. And it's a delicate balance. Uh, I mean, uh, the the candidate who I was working with in 2001, at some point was asked whether he thought he would do as good a job as Rudy Giuliani in responding to 9-11. And he said, yes, I hope I would do at least as good, uh, if not better. That was viewed as arrogant. I don't know that you're allowed to run for office if you think you're going to do a worse job than the incumbent. But but tone and words actually matter during this time, and it's, it's, it's difficult ground. What I will say, though, is that at the same time we're seeing polling that shows an uptick in the president's approval, we're also seeing polling showing Biden with a lead. Mm-hmm. Um, this is going to change from day to day. Uh, we may want to talk to some of our friends in the polling business and ask the question, you know, to the extent that polls are accurate at all these just how accurate are they when you're trying to judge these sorts of things in the middle of, of a crisis? But uh, I, I, think, I think there is a, a path for the vice president to come out and say more and, and to, to show, and I think he started to show this on the CNN interview this week, one of his greatest strengths, which is empathy. Uh, empathy both for people who are going to be dealing directly with the public health challenge and empathy with the millions of people, because we know from unemployment claims this week, three million people filed right. that, that are going to be dealing with the economic effects of this as well. Let's talk about measured response. Hmm. We also, I think, I think sometimes the media is playing too far one way or the other. But I thought that Biden's response to Chuck Todd on, on uh, Meet the Press today was right on target. And that was when, he, when, when Todd asked him about, does, does President Trump have blood on his hands? And then Biden handled it perfectly. And that, to me, David, to follow on yours, is how you handle something like this. Don't take that bait. Whatever it is that somebody in the media, for whatever reason, is trying to 
continue drawing these contrasts, I thought Biden's response was spot on. But I also thought here, maybe we're testing what a 90-day campaign might look like in the United States, because we know mm -hmm. other countries run 90-day campaigns. Well, I don't know. I mean, I think I, I think the Zika Manual had, a, I thought, a really important uh, piece in the New York Times this morning where he said, really, if we do everything right, we're looking at June. Yeah. Um, and I don't know that we're doing everything right now. That, that's right. And by the way, he said it may be even later for group sports activities, which is another way of saying I'm not sure when this baseball season is starting, if at all. Uh, but but there, I think there were there were suggestions there were suggestions this week that there might be a schedule that has the postseason played in December that that you could you could push the season out that far in in part because you know baseball is not football it's not going to be a 16 game season and if you start in June and you play a lot of double headers can you get a regular season over by October. I don't know. Maybe maybe day baseball comes back uh, this uh, this year um, uh, in the in the later months. But but right. I, I, I think I think to Tom's point, we're we're going to find we always say, you know, people don't start paying attention till Labor Day. There may not be a campaign till Labor Day, at least not much of one in the way that we think of a campaign. Well, the there may not be baseball till Labor Day. And that means well. that means we get to something else that we're paying attention to. And at the end of it for the World Series year December, we're going to say we're not going to play home and home. We're going to play in a dome stadium, one place that That's nobody right. plays in because people to come out aren't going to sit there in the middle of the winter to watch right. baseball. The Marlin Stadium is always available that time of year. <laughs> but I was going to say, thank goodness Green Bay doesn't have a baseball team. But, 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 but one last That's right. point. Austin one last does. Point, one last point on the campaign, though. I think there are other things that we're going to start to see increasingly, which is, yeah, people are very focused on this crisis, and it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. But people are paying more attention right now, I think, to social media than even yeah. before this. And to the extent that campaigns start putting out their messages in very targeted way through social media, that's something that can be done. Yeah, you can't do big rallies. It's really you're not going to go door to door right now. But we already know that 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 social media has had a tremendous impact on uh, on the way that these races are, are carried out. I think that's where there's going to be some intensification at the at the national level. And really, again, we just have no idea what's what right. things are going to be like three days from today, let alone 30 days or, or, or three months. But here's one thing we do know. Every campaign that involves an incumbent president is a referendum on the incumbent. Right. So we're going to see how this crisis plays out. And yes, the American people are getting to see Donald Trump on a daily basis. Not so sure that that works to the president's advantage over over the long term. And uh, the polling results suggesting Biden ahead, even though. People are saying they're approving the president's performance right now, or an increasing number are suggested that, that that may already be an issue. So did y'all see latest poll that 18 percent of Bernie supporters would support President Trump, the rest be for Biden. 
and you want to say, give me a break. Give me a break. I've wanted to say that for a so, while. To some right, I know. it. So I want to flip for a second because we do talk about baseball. And I thought one of the great stories this week was Fanatics, who makes all of the baseball uniforms, moved over from creating and, and making uniforms to be on the front line of this disease yep. by making protective equipment. And protective equipment that looks like the baseball uniforms. I mean, I thought, now that's what we ought to be doing. There's that been a... reminds people that, guess what? In sports or whatever, we can all come together. That's and, right. And, 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 and we can sort of take all of our resources and say, if we have this it, you know, situation, I mean, we were talking, Tom, earlier, what Vin Scully, who's 92 years old, came out and did on Twitter, which is somewhat, mm -hmm. I think, really ties into this, uh, you know, and that, you know, he said that, you know, wherever you may be, and that means that most of us are at home, which we are, uh, waiting hopefully for opening day. These are tough times. Certainly, I don't have to tell you that, but having lived as long as I've lived, I've lived 92 years, I have seen this country, the greatest country on earth, get off its knees, literally and figuratively. And what happened then was they unleashed a tiger. And Tiger was the whole country pulling together and getting not only back on its feet, but saving the whole world. And for you and I, yeah, things are tough, but we'll be up off our knees soon. And above all, I'll smile because when you smile, it makes everyone feel better. There's there's not a better voice for that right now. And it's not my and... voice. I have this voice, but you're right. It was really nope. great the Dodgers did that. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I... I think there's a timelessness. I mean, Ben Scully did play-by-play -play for the Brooklyn Dodgers. He sure did. Yeah. And and that's not yesterday. That's about 65 yesterdays ago. Um, and and I there there this is why I think we imagine this might go is the timeless nature of. Of, of baseball connects with something that is very hidebound and very tradition bound, and that is politics. I think this time, though, David makes an interesting point. I, I have seen um, on my social media feeds, and my bet is you have too, a, a very interesting thing happened that I've never seen before, and that is artists, uh, musicians of, of all sorts around the world have taken to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook to engage their audiences for free. And some of that art has been truly compelling. I know of, of one example, two, I guess. Uh, one, the players of the Toronto Symphony from all their respective home locations performed Aaron Copeland's Appalachian spring you can find that out there the second closer to home is a group of singers here in nashville who performed the old hymn it is well with my soul and uh, by the way kudos to the video engineers and editors who put all this together but but that breakthrough of art and these are people by the way who are accustomed to being paid for their performance and paid for their music 
I think they are doing something that when we get back up on our feet, Vin Scully, those artists are going to be richly rewarded because they they shared something of themselves for nothing. And I wonder if that lesson breaks through in politics. I keep looking for the candidate who's going to take to social media in a way that, I don't know, terrible example perhaps, but in that way that Franklin Delano Roosevelt is famous for doing so during the depths of the Depression and, and the early days of World War II when he sat by the fireside, whether he did or didn't, uh, Americans were sitting by the fireside in their homes listening to the radio of these long and somewhat rambling discourses about what was happening and what needed to happen in the country. I'm waiting for somebody to seize that opportunity and break through. David? So so a couple of, of things. So uh, Ben Scully wasn't born in Brooklyn, but you appropriately say that he was from Brooklyn. I, of course, have to point out that Dr. Fauci's from Brooklyn. I think a Scully-Fauci <laughs> ticket wins any election anywhere in, Play in, ball. in, in 2020. Second, the greatest article that I saw this week about baseball was actually a New York Times article about someone unearthing the blueprints to Ebbets Field. I'll just leave yeah. that as, as, as yeah. right there. But, but I think there is somebody who's stepping forward, Tom, in the way that you talk about. It's actually the son of a uh, failed player for, who never quite made the Pittsburgh Pirates, a guy by the name of Mario Cuomo. His son, Andrew, is doing a pretty good job at the whole fireside chat uh, thing. Uh, I think... Uh, uh, I, I am. You're talking, about his, you're talking about his regular briefings. Uh, uh, of what's going on in New York State and especially New York City. Yes, but they're more than briefings. I mean, I, and I'll start with the caveat that I I don't think I have ever been a fan of Andrew Cuomo. Uh, uh, for those who know of his uh, reputation in New York State, he really started in an unfortunate way as his father's enforcer. Uh, think about being 23, 24 years old and being and having your father's gubernatorial campaign put on your back and then being the de facto chief of staff to the governor <laughs> of the state of New York. And old habits are hard to break, but not just the quality of the briefings. I mean, the, particularly the last couple of, uh, of minutes of each of these briefings, they really are a fireside chat and a call to arms. He, he, he went from being, and his PowerPoints are absolutely hilarious, by the way, and I'm, you could tell that no communications director worth their salt <laughs> is writing these PowerPoints. <laughs> this is the governor's PowerPoint. My favorite was the slide when he had gone to Brooklyn and seen a farmer's market in action near Prospect Park and people weren't social distancing. And the PowerPoint slide is a picture with the word mistake in capital red letters across it. Uh, but, but, but Andrew, I think, has gone beyond the, the briefing to really this, this evocation of what it means to be a New Yorker, what toughness means, what being smart means, what it means to hang in there. And it's really become a message, I think, not just to New Yorkers, but to all Americans. By the way, if you want the Southern version of that, 
check out Andy Bashir's uh, daily briefing, the governor of Kentucky, who I think is is doing this in a very similar way. So I think there are people who are out there and at the and and there's something else that is going on. And I think we're starting to see it from candidates. There's a good story on NPR the the other day about this, about a woman who is a candidate for the state legislature in New York. And she said, you know, I can't do this right now. There are people in my community who need help. I have 70 volunteers. So instead of having them send mailings, I'm going to see if we could put them in masks, if we could put them with gloves on, and they could deliver some groceries in a safe way mm. to our neighbors. Mm. That's, I mean, fireside chats are good and important, but that sort of direct action is something that I think we'll increasingly see from candidates as well. Sort of the notion of, you know, if you do good, you'll eventually do well in politics. Yeah, and there's there is at least a candidate, I don't know how far along it is, whose workers are doing exactly what you just said here in Tennessee. Let me switch us real quick back to baseball, Tom and David, mm -hmm. if I may. Sure. Because we know we got all these rule changes and the, the commissioner of baseball is patting himself on the back for all this great work he's doing in trying to get his arrangements worked out with the players. I still wait for him to, to solve the minor league baseball issue. That's right. Uh, which is, is still fan-based, but he's probably still tone-deaf. But with part of what we're here to do, which is talk about the three-batter rule, yes. there's a great story this week <clears throat> that some left-handed pitchers may be in trouble because they are traditionally on face one batter lead. They're called loogies. That's right. Left-handed one-out guys. And there's a great story this week uh, from one of these pitchers who is in the, with the Cleveland Indians. And he was picked as the one player that might be in danger of losing their spot on the roster. <clears throat> and this guy sort of stepped up and said, here's what he said. He said if he gets a chance to face righties, he might just be able to back up what he said. Mm. I understand I have to pitch the three guys. Cleveland lefty Oliver Perez said, you might feel more comfortable because you have to pitch to three guys, and that's something that's better, probably less pressure. So when the season starts, we'll see if Oliver Perez, this left-handed reliever for the Cleveland Indians, lived up to what he said, or is he the first guy off the roster? I think, I think, he, was on the, I think he was on the Mets for a while. Yeah, if I remember yeah right. he was. Yeah, he was. He, he was a he was a starting pitcher uh, for the Mets. He pitched, I think, for the for the Royals. And and he became a guy who, for whatever reason, could only get one kind of guy out. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think You're he right. was that kind of guy when he was a starter, too. And that why that may be why he was no longer a starter. <laughs> well, Jesse Orozco in that same category, one of the great New York Mets, David. Fair right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the uh, the uh, th there have been a few of these guys over the years. Uh, Mike Myers was one. Trevor Miller was another. Uh, Will Oman was another. And and they just they just never they they all they never pitched more than uh, a batter or two. Uh, the uh, when the Orioles had a killer bullpen uh, a few years ago, it's hard to imagine, but it was just six or seven years ago. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, I lost it for a moment. Um, uh, there was always a guy uh, whose job it was to get the most dangerous hitter out. 
And as we know, the most dangerous hitter is often a left-handed hitter, at least in terms of getting on base, if not, uh, if not hitting the long ball, because they face so many right-handed hitters, uh, right-handed pitchers, I should say. I, I, I think this is a terrible rule. I think it's a great podcast name. I think it's a terrible rule. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's a little bit like saying, well, you, you can't come out of the game as a second baseman until you field three grounders. I think it makes as much sense, and and unlike uh, the de- the designated hitter, which is about to celebrate, gentlemen, just in a couple of years, its 50th anniversary. Um, unlike the designated hitter, I think this one goes away uh, very quickly. I'd be much happier with the three-hour rule. I'd like to see a baseball game end in less than three hours. And and the penalty is if it takes more than three hours, too bad. That's it. Uh, That is the limit of the fans' patience. Uh, I'm willing to tolerate games that go into extra innings, but a nine-inning game has got to end in less than three hours. It's got to. David, I know that worries you. How do you do that? You just say say we're done. We're done. But but, but, but what if you're you're tied at the end of three hours? Well, that's right. Well, you shouldn't. And you then yeah. would go. I mean, I'm okay. By the way, I. But 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 I want extra innings. I'm you know I'm yes. I'm a believer in the ethos behind the George Carlin comparison to uh, between baseball and football. You know, baseball goes on until it's over. Like this podcast. Uh, you know, there's. there's <laughs> so like today, today. Which is where producer just, Carrie Hayes reminds us that we've been going on for, oh, I don't know. 35 minutes or so. Yeah. Sarah that's Jessica all. Parker and Matthew Broderick said their goal in life was to go to Wait. all major league ballparks. They've made three. They've got a long way to go. <laughs> I just want to note that Tom Griscom said Sarah Jessica Parker. I think that's <laughs> perhaps the but, greatest thing to happen so far in this podcast. <laughs> hey, hey, relating it back to politics, Sarah well, Jessica Parker, Matthew Broderick, married in the office of the public advocate of the city of New York. Just saying. And and I've loved Sarah Jessica Parker since Square Peg. So that's it. And, I, and I've really liked uh, Matthew Broderick since Ferris Bueller's Day Off. <laughs> Excellent. Another and a great baseball Absolutely. connection. When Sarah Jessica Parker was, I think, 19. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, uh, we, we could go. Uh, on and on the great W.P. Kinsella, uh, who, of course, wrote uh, Shoeless Joe, the novel that became Field of Dreams, uh, wrote a somewhat odder book called The Iowa Baseball Confederacy. And it's a great baseball it novel. Is. Yes. And, and the Iowa Baseball Confederacy is really the fullest extension of David Eichenthal's fantasies. It is about a baseball game that never ends. And and it just goes on and on and on and eventually, I think, goes up to heaven, as I remember the book. It's been a while, but it's a beautiful story, not as uh, made for Hollywood as baseball, which I think we stole the copyright on last week, by the way. Um, (laughs) I'm going to call fair use as the attorney on this call. Uh, There are a couple of other uh, folks out here who know the law a little better than I do, but that's all right. Well, guys, uh, another great conversation, another great, uh, another great event. Um, we started out uh, by uh, 
noting the news of of, uh, of John Prine. And just so you know, this is not a complete celebrity thing. Uh, as we have this conversation on Sunday afternoon, Sunday evening, uh, in the East Coast, uh, John's uh, John's son. Uh, Jody is a neighbor of ours. He runs John's uh, record company, Oh Boy Records. Um, and so for Jody and Fanny and their two beautiful kids, uh, John's grandkids, and for all of you out there, until uh, we're together next time, uh, we wish you good health and good luck and uh, good love. For Three Better Rule, David Eichenthal, Tom Griscom. Tom Lee, producer Kerry Hayes, on behalf of all of us, we'll see you soon. Thanks, everybody.